for love and design the podcast hi and welcome back to another episode of for love and design our podcast about technology innovation creativity today ross and i are sitting down with tim fu who's been a friend since milan design week this year when we sat down with him and talk about generative ai and the future of creativity So, Tim, welcome. Thanks, Ila. Thanks, Ross. It's a pleasure to speak with you guys. Tim, really cool to have you on the uh, podcast. Yeah, super exciting. Tim is a Canadian-born architectural designer, former Zadid Architects, and now founder of his own practice, Studio Tim Fu. And he's been uh, traveling to give lecture about the future of where architecture is going. Tim, before we dive in into the deep core of our conversation today, can you please a little bit explain what was your role and work in ZH Code and what is coding in architecture? Yeah, so I'm working, I was working at the computation and design department of Sahadi Architects. So code for us actually is a short for computation and design. It's a bit of a play on word because also, you know, it spells out code, which kind of entails the type of work that we get into within our cluster of Zahadid. And that entails, for example, parametric design, algorithmic design, and things that are related to the high use of computational algorithms. So quite a lot of us within this department do code on top of using uh, other softwares. And uh, for me, well, partially is with uh, coding softwares, but also other visual scripting and parametric algorithms. So anything that relates to use of computational design to create advanced architectural practice designs. Well, really, really advanced in the sense and way that the outputs of uh, ZHA uh, is coming out. I mean, the buildings are extraordinary. I know, mm. Ross, you're a big fan. And uh, we were recently in Shanghai and some of the visual were presented there were really interesting. Oh, astonishing. Yeah. But you see, I, I can't see any other method. I mean, in, in, the, in the age in which we live, I, I see the idea of coding very, very much related to, you know, nature in the way mm -hmm. nature is coded. And mm -hmm. what I like about that is that if you look at the DNA of very, very strong architects or designers, even fashion designers, the strength of the DNA is sort of related to uh, an implied coding anyway, even mm -hmm. from previous times when there was no computational coding. Coding for me is that sort of definition of kind of profound registration of aesthetics or an idea. Well, Tim, we agree that we're witnessing a seismic shift where coding isn't just an add-on, but a fundamental aspect of design today. Yet the advent of algorithms also raises a lot of questions about the potential loss of human touch and cultural essence in our structures. How do you see the balance between algorithmic efficiency and human creativity being maintained in this new paradigm? Well, contrary to what a lot of people would uh say when they create a dichotomy between what's computationally generated and what's human driven. Because I would think that a lot of the human essence in art, architecture, and design is about creating pattern and finding pattern. So the beauty of a lot of what we see in nature 
is driven by algorithms of nature in a way. So the beauty of how cells can aggregate and create order and the larger scale, how we find fractal systems that's uh, in the DNA of the architecture of nature. So in the very same way, that beauty is ingrained in us in the way we see aesthetics. So I think as architecture and designers, we always tend to find order within a chaos. So I would say that use of computational design is actually helping us create that very human-driven uh, beauty aesthetics that we have already ingrained in us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Ross, you've been a long-standing uh, advocate of logic and beauty and complexity. So No, but I'm enjoying listening to Tim because he's articulating uh, something which is very close to me. But also what I like about what he's saying is my mind goes to two-dimensional artwork, for example. So where the idea of patterning in a sort of Damien Hirst dot painting or a Yo-Yo Kusama where there's some kind of repetition and that is pattern making. But what I like about this discussion is when you take it into the third, fourth, even fifth dimension, you know, this is what's really exciting now in terms of augmenting our perceptions. And that's where architecture is so a fundamental vehicle for what we're talking about. Well, today we talk a lot about smartness and smart things, IoT, IA as intelligent automation, all of those very trendy and buzzwords that we read in the headlines and constantly hear. Tim, the phrase smart building is becoming more and more a thing. When we reduce something as complex as integrating technology into architecture, do we risk simplifying it to the point where its true potential might be overlooked? Yeah, I think obviously there's some sort of fear that is generated by the thought of having to lose control over certain aspects of our design, as well as potentially the function and the control of how a building works. But with technologies such as the smart buildings, I think it's able to really sort of cater towards our human needs and aesthetics all of which is uh, fundamental to how we generate a building and create a building. So I would say that in the future, I see potentially a lot more smart and adaptable building construction to be taking place in the forms of potentially adaptable facade systems or self-regulating ventilation systems. And all of these can also address incredibly important ecological issues and sustainable needs. So. I think these are very human challenges and fundamental human parameters, which will require the building in order to better adapt in the future, to be self-adaptive in a sense. So to welcome a degree of automation is great for the future of construction. Everywhere we see in our human progress, we invite automation where it will de deliver us better products and architecture. And we will also invite human t intuition and design where we see fit. So I think it's a fine balance between automation and human intention as the architect and designer. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, my mind is immediately going to the, you know, the definition of evolution is adaptation to atmospheric condition. 
And really, that's where we're at right now, certainly facing some of the um, global issues with the climate and so on. So what you're saying is so important. And if you go back in time, even if you look at the work of Bucky Fuller, who, of course, who was so influential on the work or the thinking of Norman Foster, which I, whose work I really appreciate, this idea of this intelligence, this embedded intelligence. Now, there's another thing, which is product architecture, which I was trying to explore maybe 35 years ago and built certain models to look at this, where the industrial process would allow you know, a greater level of efficiency to be built. But you see today, now the way we make is very different with additive technologies scaling up, as we know. And I love that. I love the idea that you can start with the bedrock or the core of an idea and then morph that according to need. So the idea of self-regulating buildings as a form of species that are sort of self-adapting has got to be the future and as a contributor to the problems that we we face. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when Tim was talking and I knew now, uh, my mind goes back, to, uh, went back, for example, to uh, one of our latest projects that we couldn't publish just yet, but it was a fully autonomous vehicle designed together with its own urban environment. And Ross, it's an evolution of a project of yours that was also broadcast in CNN many years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like adding a little bit about that project? Oh, I'd love to, because I mean, this is something Tim would understand is that, in fact, it's not only the architecture, but how the urban environment is actually affected by flow, you know, people flow, movement and the logistics. I mean, underneath all of that is a great need for a logistical strategy that not only looks at the the buildings, but also how we enter, exit, things that are that move on a terrestrial plane, things that move in the air, and that interrelationship, uh, sort of like a beehive type thinking. Yeah, precisely. Well, you've both been giving a lot of lectures around the world, and Ross, you certainly for a very long time, but Tim, you're starting to travel continuously too, and therefore you often engage with young minds and talents. And as we're integrating more technology and coding into architecture and now AI, there's a question that is becoming more and more unavoidable, especially in my, in my mind. I constantly go back to it because it's something that I personally felt when I was studying back in Italy, feeling like Italian education was a little bit maybe uh, backwards compared to the rest of the world. Do you guys think that our educational systems are adapting fast enough today, and especially since the advent of AI? Yeah, I think fundamentally there are certain ethos in pedagogy that are being taught that I think will carry over. For example, the aspects of problem solving and critical thinking and how to engage new tools and technologies. I think there are always these methodologies and teaching, especially in our Western world, which I think is a quite a useful set of tools to have as a young uh, student and then will be a young practitioner. Uh, with our current technologies and what we know so far, uh, some of the things that are being taught are going to be on par with what we will be using in the future or the near future, at least. And then some of them are more so speculative, placing our bets into, for example, robotics, uh, robotic arms, um, additive manufacturing, and these type of technologies that we think will carry over into the future. But obviously there's a certain level of speculation as well. The most recent revolutionary trend of generative AI, I think, of course, it's so new right now that 
I don't think there's a standardized approach to it. I don't think there should be at the moment because we're all in the unknown in a sense, both the people at the top level experimenting with it, as well as professors, everyone is kind of like a bit caught off guard, if you will. I have a lot of professors that are coming to me to do these modules with me who are showing keen interest in these new technologies. And so I'm very appreciative when I see professors in the ac top academia being welcoming to these uh, new tools. Uh, but at the same time, I see that everyone is kind of like in ground zero of technology. The future is very uncertain in a sense because a generative algorithm is much more like overhauling the, the processes of how we develop our design thinking prior to all of this. So I'm also kind of scattering around and trying to figure out new approaches to design and thinking because it's overhauling a lot of ways we think, including how AI is now actually able to be creative and it's targeting the creative domain, something that we were taught that it's not going to for a very long time. And it's also part, part of the reason why I got into architecture thinking that, okay, creative fields are one of the least likely to be threatened by these technologies. And now it's no longer the case. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in architectural education. I'm not particularly interested in design ex education. And I always have been. I mean, that's why I sit in on crits at the DRL and Bartlett and so on. Because I think that this is an age of speculation, especially because things have just become such a big open horizon again. And it's acceptable. It's very, very acceptable to be speculative. I mean, for years running my studio, at least 40% of my output would be research orientated, funded by the fees that I would make as a designer, because I was never satiated as a designer, particularly because it would never go far enough. Why would one think outside the box with great credibility and then have to accept less? It, it, we're in an age now with great, great, as I say, new horizons. And with that, we're being supported by tools that we are mastering in a certain way. So it, it's never been more exciting than now, even if it's a little bit confusing. And one should not have any fear whatsoever, as Tim was saying, about these new tools, these programs, or even the way that we coexist or co-create with these new tools. It's the input. It's, uh, and we need to be the people who, and I don't mean this sort of centrically, but I mean, we, there are people out there who have the wherewithal knowledge and some degree the instinctive wisdom to guide. And that's what I find really beautiful. Yeah, I think that certainly these new technologies are, are showing more and more to creatives and young talents that there is a lot of personal one-on-one -on -one development that we need to do as individuals. Like it's something that Arturo Tedeschi and I spoke about in the past as well, because we, we both have a big proportion of our own talents as self-taught. You know, it's this self-willingness to keep on developing your own skill set aside from conventional education. And this is exactly what generative AI is forcing us to do. You know, you need to play with the technology on your own. You need to spend 
hours upon hours to try to understand how to work with it. What's your approach with it? What's your journey with the technology and therefore where it's going to come and how to prompt your own prompts and so on. On another side of AI and technology, we're living in an age where the environmental impact of our choices has never been more critical. And while smart buildings and coded architecture and intelligent automation, they promise incredible efficiency. There's also a huge environmental cost to the technology itself. Ross, given your critical perspective on technology and design, how do you view the trade-offs between technological advancement and environmental sustainability? Well, there's a lot of hidden obstacles which are never really talked about. There's the big one, and that is energy, energy use and consumption. People do not know that every three years, it's only three years, our need, our demand for electricity doubles. And that is being exacerbated by a whole new revolution in the use of chat GPT, uh, the AI, all these new platforms and so on. The demands are extraordinary. And on top of that, you make one request on chat GPT, and that uses roughly about a liter of pretty good water because you need to cool all of these these computers, these mainframes, these these huge computers. So that is expanding at a rate in order to uh, satisfy uh, this growing demand. And on top of that, you've got electrification of cars, you've, you've got all the mobile technologies and so on. And I think people forget that. So there needs to be also a revolution scientifically in quantum development at the, at the very back end that allows this to happen. Absolutely. Um, Tim, is your work conscious of the environmental aspect of uh, smart technologies and the way we're interacting with um, new tools? Yeah, Ross covers some really good points here. How we use our energy in order to create the future of our society, that's going to be something that is fundamental. And as I develop further, going from just AI images to actual architecture, and materializing everything. The second half of the process will take a lot more time and and a lot more uh, designated um, ways to create a sustainable practice. The use of these artificial intelligence systems and cloud computing is going to kind of really use up a lot of our energy in the future. But uh, at the same time, I think that's the natural progression of our society, of how we are going to allocate our energy because we've moved past the points of past industrial revolution, past massive manufacturing, passing the phase where we all work in the office and everyone has to commute. I think in the next generation, a lot of stuff is going to be um, overtaken by artificial intelligence systems and self-regulating systems. It's going to use neural networks to solve problems of logistics, of traffic, and even of the need to require us to assemble ourselves into groups. For example, us having a intellectual dialogue here virtually uh, and remotely is potentially going to be the way that's going to be more so the case in the future. And wherever it can be applied, machine learning and neural network systems are literally going to replace a lot of the tasks that we're currently using our human brain or energy consumption for. So while we will need more computational power, for artificial intelligence, the energy expenditure will be sort of proportionally gravitating towards that as opposed to how we're using energy right now. 
which is potentially running a high occupancy office or allowing everyone to drive around to go through meetings and organizing our society through car-oriented traffic. It's about reallocating our resources and breaking away from how we organize our cities in the past. Yeah, totally. Really interesting what you both both guys said. And I totally agree. Absolutely. I think what we currently have as a infrastructure of our society is very primitive compared to our true potential. And in a way, it's almost like automation and AI is going to force us to go beyond fossil fuels, which we could have, you know, abandoned many years ago, but now it's really the time because of this exponential growth of energy requirements and a need for resources. It is the time to go fully into solar. It is the time to do to go fully into geothermal energy and so on, maybe nuclear fusions and so on, which uh, by the day, scientists, they keep on discovering new ways of uh, producing and fusing energy and so on. It's really exciting times. I mean, uh, recently I stumbled across an article that said, you know, we are on the verge of a massive scientific revolution and average people don't even care. I mean, it's going to go, I don't want to be uh, too extreme with uh, referencing the metrics, for example, but we are entering a phase where absolutely quantum computing together with incredible sources of energy is going to take us forward and bring us into this realm of the superhuman and super society. Well, it's interesting because if you take established cities like London and so on, I mean, I've always thought that it's much better instead of trying to augment and compensate within the old part of those cities that you just build a new city alongside a city. So you you just grow in that way and you learn from that. But also that's where the idea of building from from scratch new new cities in new locations. It's not all about the established old world. And that's a sort of metaphor now for the way I think we're going, where everything is interrelated. I mean, we live in an age where at least society realize, realizes that we are, it's the butterfly effect that we are so interconnected. And I'm interested in that symbiosis. So it's great talking to Tim is that we can touch upon all these different points, these levels, which ultimately coalesce into what would be an intelligent, but also beautifully aesthetic uh, future. Yeah, that echoes the, the idea of tabula rasa, right? Like how we have, a, our society was always trying to augment and improve what we have developed. But in order to really create a fundamentally new and efficient way to create our cities and to allow it to function in a way that it never has, by actually incorporating all these artificial intelligence technologies, we do really need to really think about how we should reconfigure society. Whether we should have dwelling in one place, an office in one place, whether we should have a centralized system, and whether we should have the sort of the highway system that we currently have linking it all together in a traditional sense and how we should adapt to a more remote working, for example, and how a lot of the future work will be energy transfer and information transfer, as opposed to physically transferring ourselves from location to location. All of that will also be regulated by potentially an artificial intelligence systems that will use neural networks to understand how we organize ourselves in ways that we cannot because, uh, we require a bit of that super intelligence in order to facilitate the calculations of so many parameters 
of, of our society. So I think that um, it's a very important approach to put into questions the traditional way we establish our cities and how we work, including put into question our nine to five type of systems. And it's going to be a, a disruptive change. We're post-industrialized, we're in information age, and we've already got used to the idea that we have to work in a certain way. And so the next challenge in society and humanity is actually putting that into question and allowing people to accept the idea that a fundamentally different way to work, to live, to play will be in place in the future. And I think that's where the fear comes from is because it's going to change the way we live. A lot of the ways we thought we lived is fundamentally ingrained to us culturally through television culture, through work culture. And so those things are going to be uprooted a bit. Yeah, it really, uh, really touches me. It makes me think about the metaverse, which again, there's a lot of fear in its conversation because it's going from the physical to the metaphysical. But, you know, uh, even this morning I was thinking about if the way forward is that young people who don't have that income are living in smaller spaces, in cities, um, that they reduce their need for material culture within and then through, you know, HoloLens, uh, other ways of, of interfacing uh, with the world, they can access anything. And I, I mean, I'm fascinated by that. And every time I put on the VR goggles, I don't know why it's just me, but I, I don't lose my instinct. I feel like my world just expanded. And I, I think for this kind of restraint and constraint that's going to come in the future through these massive systems bearing down, I think people are going to look for new, this new outward connectivity. And that, again, will dematerialize on the one hand, it's a form of compensation, it's what you were saying before, but then at the same time, open up a whole new future. And we need to be accepting of that level of uh, revolution. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, this has been an enlightening conversation, to say the least, between the evolving role coding in architecture, AI, the environmental concerns. It's clear that we're standing at the intersection of numerous complex but incredibly exciting pathways. I think overall it's important to remind ourselves and other creatives that the future is not just about what we can build but also how and why we're building it. Before we sign off, we got some questions from our audience that we would love to address. Tim, this is the first one. How does coding in architecture affect construction costs? Are smart buildings necessarily more expensive to build? We're currently in development of smart materials, smart buildings, and very radically different sustainable methods of construction. So I think we are in sort of in its infancy of this radically sustainable way of developing. And uh, I think we cannot judge our current endeavors with what's to come in the future, because right now we're kind of planting the seeds of what's possible uh, with biodegradable materials, smart materials, self-organizing materials. I have um, colleagues working on research in mycelium and um, growing architecture. There are so many radical ways to fundamentally regenerate our architecture of the future that I think it's possibly going to radically change how we do our construction in the future. So we won't be requiring the current processes that we have in place. And we have yet to fully be able to evaluate the sort of energy consumption slash the overall life cycle, how much carbon footprint we save. So I think as of yet, my answer would be that 
I don't obviously have a specific way or method to improve the current construction method that I can point to because all the trajectories are under research, going from artificial intelligence generated architecture to self-organized systems to automation and robotics and construction, all of which can potentially change the way we uh, consume energy. And all of them are currently in development. And plus of the technology that we mentioned is still continuously advancing. We're going to reach a point where we're not going to be, it's not going to be recognizable, the construction methods. So I'm looking into that future where things are changing radically, whereas not now we're looking at current construction methods and trying to improve uh, incrementally. So I'm hoping to see that reorganization and then evaluate based on the new system. What you're saying really makes me uh, think about the typology of architecture, because remember, it's, n it's not this sort of just umbrella. It's got points of definition within it. So if you think about a school or a hospital, wouldn't it be great to work on new universal models of what that means? You know, I mean, if, if school is about educating children from the ground up to all these things that we're discussing, you know, this, again, the convergence of all things considered, not only Shakespeare, I think then it would pull in an obvious use of every leading edge, cutting edge technology. And by definition, it would align itself with more scientific institutions. You know, certainly within medicine, that's going to come. It's sort of spaceship Earth kind of way of thinking where the architecture becomes influenced by other things. I mean, uh, influenced by a space station rather than an old railway building uh, in Mumbai. You know, so it's a wonderful moment because I think it comes back to uh, definition, definition of new models. Well, from what I'm understanding, I think the answer or part of the answer lies in the long-term benefits that we have here. While the initial costs may be higher, small buildings in the future are going to prove to be much more cost-effective over time. And therefore, the efficiency and therefore the automation and therefore why we need to do this jump. I mean, the other day um, I saw online and in a very cool project, uh, which I think it was Bjarke and Engels and Icon in US, which was this first fully 3D printed house being uh, installed and uh, fully equipped in Texas, for example. Okay, you could argue 3D printing and additive manufacturing is still higher, but that was a relatively low budget for something that looks really cool for a low income kind of family. So I think it's absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, British scientists who invented the LED, his great success was that he managed to multiply the efficiency of that a thousand times. Well, I'm just thinking that there's a, a conversation going on right now about the use of, of glass in architectures being kind of a negative because of the heating of the building and blah, blah, blah. You know, it might be that given the situation we're facing, that maybe skins of buildings are more dense, in which case, if you've got a a new way of producing light within the idea of using 3d printing which is not transparent partly might be you get this hybridization which uh, for me that's um, almost an agent uh, to get your teeth into <laughs> to see what you could do with that idea even the way we sort of evaluate our current uh, construction methods and budget 
everything is based on the traditional paradigm since the post-industrial society of massive manufacturing and repeating modules. So traditionally, that's how we create efficiencies. But I think since we're moving into this new, more complex society where construction can be non-modularized and efficiently non-modularized through 3D printing and artificial intelligence organized systems, then we have to depart from the traditional methods of prefabrication, modularization, because that's how we evaluate efficiency in the traditional paradigm. And so now we discuss things like 3D printing, computational systems, creating highly efficient complex geometries that are not necessarily repetitive, then these tools like 3D printing can then excel. And in the future, when you have self-organized robotics, things that can be deployed rapidly and autonomously, then you also relieve a lot of the costs through the operations. So you can imagine, for example, drones laying bricks in very different ways. You could imagine the 3D printing robotics is part of the, the construction and it kind of would elevate itself and grow along with the architecture. So that's a method of the future of construction that will be a lot more autonomous. And with these methods already, you can then cut off the logistics of the requirement of human labor, of uh, a lot of traditional fabrication methodologies, and of doing like the logistics of sending in-house fabricated materials and panels to on-site, and then human labor and construction of on-site, what we're currently doing now when it comes to complex geometries. So with those things, we're going to see a huge shift in how we consume energy for the construction of these smart systems. Really fascinating. You just made me think about a conversation I recently had in Dubai with someone at the Dubai Future Foundation. And our main focus was exactly what you just described, that current investments should be done at a material science level together with robotics. So that then, therefore, what we are starting to visualize now can be made and smartly made. Look, only in the last weeks has it been announced that there's a new form of glass that's been developed, which has a lower melt point, so it uses less uh, energy, actually, in its production. But equally, it's incredibly strong. So it means that you will be able to produce glass for architecture that's super thin and still does the job. It will not be useful enough for smartphones and other devices, but certainly when you look at the application of glass globally, it's probably the material mm -hmm. in, in terms of quantity. But just quickly on that one, you know, I've been in the world of industry for a long time and it's bothered me. It's bothered me because I see it as limiting. It's a bit like food production or clothes, you know, they have to produce all these things and then hope it'll sell. It's kind of it's self-limiting. And if you look at the architecture, certainly of uh, 60s, 70s, which was modular, reproduced, if you like, dull. And we're looking back at that now and thinking, you know, in a biological, morph morphological way, it makes you feel it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. We should not be living within those spaces. So everything that Tim is talking about, I, I start to see a composition of architecture of different materials, different weights, different stresses, blah, 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 all related to atmospheric condition rather than taste. <laughs> so that's really interesting. Wow. Yeah, we always get this sort of false impression that um, our new paradigm of parametric algorithm design is based off of formalism and taste. 
But in reality, I think the underlying philosophy, as uh, I'm sure Ross, you've also been trying to say to everyone, is that it's the way of thinking, is how we're using this new methodologies to create complex geometries that are highly functional, that have underlying rules. But those rules are not based off of taste, or rather than performance and how we can create a better self-regulating system in the future. Well, strangeness is a consequence of innovative thinking, and I've been saying that for as long as I've been alive. And it's interesting looking at your work, Tim, because you, independently of what you were doing at Zaha, there is, I can see the emergence of this, you're breaking some of those rules. And uh, so you're true to self in that regard, where there's a, a convergence of craft and technology. And I say this as a compliment, there's a sort of weirdness that draws me in. And I think it's, it takes great courage to do that and not be tasteful, you know, because everybody wants a project, but it's no longer about that. I think it's all broken down into this fearlessness and, and go for it, but be able to justify your actions on the basis of, you know, preset conditions that we all agree with. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. A lot of what I, what I get from the Sedex Zaha deed, uh, I really appreciate, but beyond that, in the greater realm of things, I'm also very much inspired by what you would say, just nature and forms. And not only because it looks pretty, but because underlying beauty of all those geometries that we found in nature are all driven by mathematics and algorithms for high performance and function. So the underlying rationale is something that I really try to then convert it into architectural practice so that the complexity that is uh, emerged out of uh, our thinking becomes something that is functional driven. And the aesthetics is more so a happy byproduct of this thinking. Well, this is what should be taught. This is what is absolutely, I think, the end game is to set up a position where it's understandable, it's believable uh, for intelligent people. You know, we're looking at global consciousness here and trying to affect that. Not, we're not looking at popularism, that's another thing. Uh, so, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful moment, I think. <laughs> well, this is another question, Ross, coming from another member of our audience and directed to you. Can older buildings be retrofitted to become smart or upgraded? to become newly designed and efficient in, in this new kind of paradigm of new technology? Or should we just forget about the past and concentrate on new constructions? It depends how you want to live. I mean, people have the ability to adapt. So it means if you're in a cold space, a stone, old stone, grungy space with its wabby-sabby qualities and incredible light, rusted parts, uh, blah, blah, blah. You go to the Izumonaguchi Foundation in Mure in the south of Japan. Wow. The, the fiber walls and the whole thing. I mean, it really touches you. I mean, big time. So I wouldn't preclude that. But as Ela was speaking, I suddenly was blowing a silver bag inside a Venice Palazzo with all the technology in it. So you blow this bag into the space, you forget what's there, and you just inhabit in another way. It's sort of Tetra Pak meets, um, I don't know, irreverence. <laughs> Yeah. Very creative. Tim, we have a question for you. Um, what's the role of open source software in coded architecture? And what are your most used softwares and platforms today? My stance on op being open source is I've always encouraged and I always supported open source information, knowledge, education, and as well as software. Because I think, for example, having 
uh, stable diffusion and allowing others to actually edit the code uh, for this type of diffusion architecture, diffusion AI model, is that it allows everybody to kind of progress collectively as humanity and build on top of each other these technologies. So not necessarily trying to have a closed system. So when it comes to the program that I use the most, it will be using Midjourney at the moment due to its uh, ability to create visuals and understand sort of spatial qualities at a higher level. It's able to resolve three-dimensional geometry the best out of the softwares that I'm using currently so far. But I do have to say that in the better ideal society, if the most leading software developers are to have an open source systems, it would be more beneficial as a society if we can all learn from and build on top of these lines of codes. Instead of creating a sort of bureaucracy and a monopoly over these AI softwares, for example, how OpenAI has made itself closed, uh, ironically, to its name. You know, these moves are obviously driven by control and driven by a sort of bit of capitalist thinking of how we should use these tools in the future uh, and let the few control it and basically limiting ourselves from developing technologically fully. So I think it's normal that our society is going to commodify and capitalize on these technologies just due to how our society is run. But fully intellectually, I hope that more things can be open sourced in the future, including data sets, including image database. There's a lot of these discussions now about ownership and data sets. And I do see a potential dystopian society where all these architectural office decide to, you know, patent their own image databases. And so you're not allowed to get inspirations from other architectural styles in order to create your own. I think that can be a very, uh, that can impede the way our culture evolves because we've always built our knowledge and our inspirations and style off of each other. You know, there's no postmodernism without modernism. So I'm currently constantly trying to deliver this message where I hope people don't create so many closed systems and everything is about ownership in the future, because there's a lot of discussion about AI and image ownerships in the future, and it can go either way. And I'm afraid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, image on one end and then proprietary information of deeper kind of technologies on the other end. I totally agree with what you just said. Um, I think sometimes, if not often, capitalism can be a total restriction to true innovation, like this kind of competitive this is mine or I need to beat you in politics as well is limiting us as a unified homogeneous species to really progress. Recently, Ross and I, we were listening to a scientific podcast where this female researcher was talking about, for example, their research into Alzheimer's and the genetics of Alzheimer's disease. And for example, you know, she's a British lab and she's the lead scientist of a British lab. And then there is a US-based lab, and then there is a French-based lab, and they're all competing on each other on who's going to discover first the genetics be behind Alzheimer's. And eventually, they could only crack and find those three genes at the core root of Alzheimer's by coming together and do collaborative work. Because eventually, there were three labs, and each one of them discovered one of the genes. But guess what? It's 
together that they could find the the ultimate solution. So I'm behind precisely what you said that we should all come together, we should not compete, we should we should share information, share discoveries so therefore ultimately progress. You know, you should do something that you love or you work on behalf of humanity, but humanity as part of a biosphere. So it's not just humanity, it's the whole interrelated synergistic symbiosis of where we are and I've always felt that so the idea of open source is so important and you know it's gone is the age of singularity and the ego I think that's really gone big time and I think it's now all about collaboration certainly the people that uh, we collaborate collaborate with across the globe I'm shocked at their intelligence and the way they articulate themselves outside of their own language even. And what's great about these new uh, AI and new, new, new forms of communication is that they allow a whole new level of nuanced communication. And I have a great belief in humanity. If there are seven plus almost eight billion people on earth, we have to be able to find, well, I don't know, I mean, 50 million people who have a certain guidance system uh, that's, that's similar in the way that they want to solve problems and they want to up, up their skill base and their interconnectivity to form a kind of counterbalance to some of this insanity that is created through capitalism and um, competition, basically, international competition. I mean, I don't get any of it personally, and I don't want to get all political here, but I think what I've loved about the world of design, and to some extent architecture, is it can be beyond all of that. It lives and it grows independently, and it's a hub of intellect. And that's, you know, that can go anywhere with the right kind of guidance. You know, we, if we sat down with Noam Chomsky and a few other people, I mean, it'd be really interesting. It's not just about designers or architects anymore. I think there, there needs new terminologies, Tim, that, that stop us talking about industry. What a terrible name. I mean, God, what about efficiency or some other lovely softer name? I don't know. It's just let's get the terminology changed as well. Beauty intelligence. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. It's been amazing being with you today. Such a pleasure to speak with you guys. 